You're listening to Together by AGCI. I'm Maddie Salvati. There's no sugarcoating it. Having conversations about race can be challenging and uncomfortable, especially when talking to young kiddos, family members, and even colleagues. But as a white person who has been very privileged in her life, having those conversations really feels like the least I can start doing and continue to do as we march forward into hopefully a more inclusive and brave dialogue together about race and its history in our country. Here today to help me find more solid ground in those conversations is Dr. Charlene Williams. She is an award-winning educator, leader, and the assistant superintendent to the Camas Washington School District. In June of 2019, she presented a TED Talk called What to Stop and Start Doing in America's Race Conversation. We have been honored at AGCI to have her help in these last few months in leading these discussions about race with our staff. We are eternally grateful for her. So without further ado, here's Charlene. I had the pleasure of meeting um, with Angela Hood and Holland Frazier about uh, a talk I'd um, done for our school district. And they were interested in some of the things that I had to say. And we had a conversation about uh, potential training for the organization um, since my, my talk was really around how do you have conversations about race and what are some do's and don'ts when it comes to that. And um, it was just beautiful to meet them and to hear more about this organization um, in that they clearly are already of the mind of social justice and equity and diversity and yet wanting to commit to do deeper work and to ensure that as a staff, that your your staff community was continuing to be ever mindful um, in having these conversations, especially as you support um, multiple interracial um, uh, adoptive families. And um, so that kind of launched the discussion. And so now we've been in a, an introductory four-week uh, four-part series, um, just kind of high-level overview of, you know, the roots of institutional racism, some tools around how to have that conversation, and our last session is going to be around, um, you know, how do you then embed this conversation in your organization so that it's ongoing and becomes a part of how you change the fabric of, of what you do. And so um, it's been uh, honestly a privilege to work with such committed individuals who are leaning into this conversation. Well, we so appreciate having you. And maybe for a little, even a little more context for our audience too, what does your day-to-day look like? And how are you integrating the things that you're teaching us? How are you integrating that into your daily life as well? I mean, coming from your background and everything. Yes, I, I am. I'm sorry. I, I'm good. from... No Uh, the Camas School District. I'm the assistant superintendent. I um, started off as a math educator back in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And um, my career has led me to um, my current role as assistant superintendent, where, you know, from 
my junior teachers in high school telling me about inequities in education and challenging me as a young black woman um, to to rail against those inequities uh, to being one who, well, how do I empower many others like those teachers empowered me to um, create a more equitable and just society? And so math was one of the vehicles uh, I used, right? Teaching math. was just a, a gateway to dismantle some of those practices. So I, I have the, the privilege of uh, working in the Camas School District where uh, I work with our secondary schools and I work with pretty much all staff around issues related to equity and diversity. Our, our One of our mantras is we see and serve each and every student. Um, and really, I think about the African proverb that says, you know, until I see you, I don't exist. You know, until you see me, I don't exist. And so the power of letting each and every student feel seen and valued as we deliver our curriculum, as they walk in our schools, as they um, interact with our staff, as they open textbooks, um, just being seen and, and valued and appreciated for who they are, having to change nothing, you know, um, but, but us being adaptive as a system to appreciate all the beautiful differences our children bring, I think is, is important and part of the work that we're trying to do. Yeah, I love that. I love what you said about being seen and just how important that is, not only for, I think, for young kids and just to remind them of their value and how you were saying, I love that. Um, and then going forward too with us as an organization at AGCI, how that can just translate over so much into the work that we do, whether that it doesn't matter, like what department we're in, what kind of, what we bring to the table, like being seen by each other and for, I guess, the efforts that we're trying to input when it comes to making a change, I think is really important as well. And one question I did have for you, um, and maybe we can let the audience know, our listeners know what we've really been up to um, with these sessions we talked about earlier that you've been teaching with AGCI. Um mainly how to have hard and healing conversations around race and how having those conversations now allows us to dive deeper into bigger issues down the road. We're not afraid to approach them anymore. Um, There's, I guess, the first term that comes to mind, that fragility around having those conversations. So can you tell us more about that and what that's been like? Um, well, you know, the intent and the hope is to, uh, first just have the conversation about how to have the conversation, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so our, our first session is, is about some norms that we put in place. And sometimes the, the norms in the conversations about race are not, uh, don't necessarily mirror typical norms that we're used to. And what stands out to me, you know, um, we, we talk about experiencing discomfort. We live in a, in a society and a country where we want people to like us and we want um, to very quickly move from that place of discomfort. Um, and what that does, what we find in our conversations about race, if we don't wrestle with that discomfort and, and unpack why, you know, what's making me uncomfortable in this situation? Why don't I want to linger and understand um, 
someone's someone's experience who's different than right. than I am. Um, that how you know how can I listen in a way that doesn't subtract from who I am? It doesn't subtract from my experience, mm-hmm. right? And so we ask people to pause long enough and feel and experience that discomfort before you try to leave it and begin to question it so that it can inform you and help you hear and experience um, what other people are bringing to the conversation. So, you know, experiencing this discomfort. Another norm is speaking your truth. We still struggle <laughs> sometimes to, to be very transparent about what we're thinking and what we're feeling, um, especially in conversations around race, in part because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Right. Um, and we also don't want to be perceived as racist or sexist or homophobic or misogynistic. I mean, you name the term. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be labeled a thing. And so um, we may we may filter right our curiosity and our or um, our, our true hidden needs and yeah. values so that we maintain this. Um, this impression that we like to have amongst our colleagues or friends or peers, um, you know, no one would ever want to say deep, deep down that, oh, you know, I don't really think black people are as intelligent as white people. And that's influenced decisions that I've made in where my children go to school or mm-hmm. what, you know, whatever yeah. that, that may be. And so we talk about the importance of speaking your truth. Another one that might be, um, uh, disruptive <laughs> to people's experience and conversation is um, understanding that, you know, although you may not have intended to offend someone, we lean more into the impact mm-hmm. of yeah. that offense more so than the intent. Because it's it, it's almost dismissive to say, well, I didn't intend to offend you. I'm sorry. It, right. it puts the work back on you to get over it mm-hmm. as opposed for me to reflect on, well, how might my words have been received that way? And why, and, and how, how can I, um, how can I value Maddie's sensitivity and experience as opposed to um, centering myself and my needs? Yeah. So um, those are, those are three of the things that we talk about. And even in talking about how to have the conversation, we begin to dismantle some of our racist um, norms and ideas because how limiting how people speak is a me- mechanism for oppression. Right. right. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. So, so, so if we begin to break that up and allow people uh, the freedom to speak and, and to center marginalized voices and say that their experiences are real and to pause and validate those experiences, we have started the very work of dismantling some of our systems. And one being one of our most sacred is our voice mm-hmm. and, and, and allowing people to have voice and conversation. So yeah. that's a little bit of, at least that's part of the first session. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah. I just love the concepts that you talk so much about, about using your voice, like just start there. And mm-hmm. I think having the courage to do that is step one. And when I think about like the demographic that we help, and that's often families with young kids, how could they, like you were saying, empower each other, empower young kiddos, especially to not be afraid to have those conversations? How do you empower 
parents to have those conversations too, especially we are an adoption agency. That's part of, it's only, it's one small part of what we do. Um, but along the lines of transracial adoption or um, backgrounds like that, that are complicated and often hard to start conversations about with your child. Um, and I guess in terms around race, how do parents start, I guess, is the best way to ask that question. <laughs> I would say early and often, children as young as six months old can uh, discern differences, right, in people's um, racial makeup. And then as they get older, they begin to perceive how um, those around them interact with those differences so that um, we sh uh, shared, I think in our first session, the doll video. Yeah. So those, those, they were very, very young. So we're talking about by five, six, and seven, these children have pretty deep rooted ideas of what's good with respect to uh, whether black is good or white is good or what's preferred and mm -hmm. what's not, because it's starts so early through messages that are literally in the air and in the water from the time students, uh, our children are born. Yeah. And so, um, uh, and being, being clear and direct with students is uh, with our, and I use the term students cause I default to my education speak, sure, but, but, um, but you know, being um, clear and and direct with students about race, um, I think is is important. I I want to share a little bit of a resource because yeah, my background is secondary education, and um, when it comes to working with younger um, children, and especially when we're talking about um, you know how to have dialogue with youth, um, one of our um, one of our uh, social workers shared an, a resource with me from, let's see, it's from the Child Mind Institute. And it talks about how to talk to kids, basically, mm -hmm. about race. And the first thing to do is to not avoid yeah. <laughs> talking about it, you know, because this isn't something new. And, and like I said before, um, it's, it's something that the earlier you start with children, the better. And, you know, the earlier you have images of, of multiracial, um, children in your books and people at your dinner table and, you know, play dates at the park and being able to articulate the differences between and, and the beauty in those differences, not to say, don't talk about that. Hey, yeah. there's a black, here's that, that's, child's skin is black. Wow. Isn't it pretty? Mm -hmm. You know, well, let's go find out their name and, you know, and help them have those conversations. And so, yeah. um, they say, uh, be clear, direct, and factual because again, um, it's, it's being very specific and not, um, well, some people do bad things. No, there are some people in this instance, some white people have treated some black people very poorly and mm -hmm. that is wrong. And that is not who we are as a family. 
and being very, very clear when we're talking to those students to be calm, but we don't have to hide our emotions. Mm -hmm. They need to know that, you know, this is often um, an emotional topic and that as adults, we learn how to manage our emotions as well and to use a support system. You know, as a parent, you won't know everything. And so how do you build support with with other parents or families that are um, that are having these conversations as well and then keep the conversation open because Mm -hmm. again it's going to take many (laughs) many conversations many exposures many experiences to to um, to help students navigate uh, the world we live in Mm -hmm. I just think about parents, like, forget that their kids are capable of understanding these really specific examples, and they want to and they need to, I think, especially in this day and age. And I think preparing the next generation for that is so important as well. And I'm sure you get to see and do that every day with your job. And I just, I love that. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. I I think, too, that, you know, when it comes to these conversations to also just say, I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. that's something we can explore. Maybe, you know, we can ask the question and come back to this. I mean, I think that's something I give many of us need sometimes when we we run out of information or knowledge and we don't have the answer. Hey, (laughs) let's pause. Let's find out. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And I'd love to know, too, maybe a little bit more about your personal journey just with healing and with race. I'm sure that's a a bigger question, but I think giving um, we always love providing that story, especially for our listeners. And just, I know that's so valuable um, and understanding to just the work that needs to be done as well. Um, so would you mind sharing a little bit of your story with us? Oh, sure. Um, I, you know, if we're starting with um, growing up in my relationship to race and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and as we know, the, it's our stories around race are um, intersectional and multi-layered, right? right? So I'm growing up um, with a single father yeah. <laughs> at, at this point because my mother had, you know, some challenges and um, he ended up raising me with um, my grandparents mm-hmm. and the the three of them did the best they absolutely could, I'm sure, in so many ways to, to help me um, you know, to raise me to, and, uh, in a house of love and yet for whatever reason, I know that like the children in that video, um, having darker skin and the darkest skin in my family, I knew that that wasn't, you know, that wasn't seen as beautiful by most at that time. Again, my parents loved me and, and, and did all those things, but from, you know, um, relatives outside our, our, you know, unit circle to, um, uh, friends I played with, to, you know, black, white, and different, I just, and, and things that I saw in my environment, yeah. definitely, uh, valuing, um, whiteness as the norm and mm-hmm. as beautiful and wanting, like I said, as early as five years old to be lighter and to have longer, straighter hair and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. And, and it just really took, thank God, uh, 
educators who had come into my life. And, you know, again, my family continued to, to do what they could to reinforce those things. But um, it, it, it was quite a journey to get to a point like I'm and I'm saying high school, college right? Coming into Black is Beautiful, (laughs) you know, uh, after a series of, um, you know, experiences, because again, there's so much in our society that says, you know, um, again, white is beautiful and, and Black is not in so many ways that if you're not very intentional about the exposure, you can have people who are focus more on assimilation and um, moving away from their racial identity instead of embracing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so through a series of, of key experiences, I could kind of point out along the way from a, a, a woman in church who handed me the Negro mother from Langston Hughes. And I memorized that poem and it lit something in me like, whoa, wait a minute, mm-hmm. black is powerful. And look at this rich experience we had. And, and look at, you know, these black um inventors and poets etc you know all all these powerful people um to uh black teachers that i started to have from uh middle and high school and then getting to college and nearly coming out with an african american studies minor and wanting to raise my own daughters now you're going to make me weep a little bit but oh. To raise my own daughters to love themselves mm. and to and to see themselves beautiful as early as I could, yeah. you know, so to to make sure that they played um, with black dolls and they saw black books and black pictures and and that it, every time I touched they, their hair, it was it was beautiful and and all of those things. And now I might think they they think too highly of themselves. But you know, <laughs> I don't think that's possible. I just, you know, and and they 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 could see um, the the dilemma and challenge of still, of course, being black in a predominantly white yeah. Northwest and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the level of intention it takes and it. It, it, it's, it's it's exhausting, especially if you are doing it alone mm. um, and not necessarily in a network, yeah. which is why the work we're doing is so important. Yeah, it's definitely. it's so important to have a whole system, right? A whole system moving towards more inclusivity and valuing mm-hmm. um, each person's depth and beauty. Especially thinking about your daughters and um, younger kids and I guess, like teenagers even too, who are going forward into the world, what are your hopes for them? And what are your hopes for the future right now? Wow. Um, um, My my oldest daughter came home one day and she said something like, Mom, will black boys ever think I'm beautiful? Mm. And I go, yes. <laughs> and she she knew. She said, I know I'm I know I'm cute, but like, man. And I just look forward to to the day where, 
you know, that that will just no longer be a question for any child, especially beautiful, uh, dark, lovely uh, uh, young ladies. And and um, I just look forward to that time where we don't have to um, where, where there isn't so much labor on justifying the value that different people add to any community or curriculum or culture or company or fill in the blank, right? Yeah. Like we're, that we are actually just um, in, in labor and community together, loving each other, supporting one another um, and, and doing the work of, of just of being, right? Being in community. Um, but it, that, that will definitely, I know that'll take, that'll take a while and some time. Um, but yeah, I look forward to those days. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And I think that's a beautiful vision and I do think it's possible as well. Um, (laughs) and with that too, is there, are there any other last minute thoughts here that you'd want to leave with our listeners? I do. I do want to. I do hope that this, this work, you know, having these conversations and this dialogue does create a sense of hope and a sense of momentum Mm -hmm. that, you know, if we have these tools, use these tools or some, what, you know, whether it's these or some others, if we, if we do the work of, of changing, um, our organizations and, um, changing who's around our dining table. If we do yeah. the, that work, that it will produce the fruit, mm-hmm. um, and and we need to begin to to look for that, cultivate that, celebrate that, and elevate it so that um, it offers hope to the rest of the community. Because there's just so many things happening right now mm-hmm. that are just heart wrenching and heartbreaking, and people are losing that sense of hope. And I'm just, I, I look forward to this work, cultivating that hope and not giving in to despair. Mm. That's awesome. I'm, I'm so excited. I love what you just said about cultivating hope. That's so, it's more important than ever right now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for being here today, Charlene. It was wonderful to get to talk to you. And I just so look forward to the other session we have with ATCI and getting to participate in that. That should be wonderful as well. Um, But thank you for being here today. It was so great to have you. Awesome. Well, thank you. And let me know if there's something um, that that I can do (laughs) to support you. Of course. Thank you so much, Charlene. We'll talk again soon. Dr. Williams' vision for the future brings me a lot of hope, too. And since we recorded this episode, we've met with Dr. Williams to keep the conversation moving and productive, especially between us as a staff. My biggest takeaways from all of these discussions with her has been to not get discouraged and to not take my foot off the gas. This movement, these conversations, can only happen when we stick together and bring all of ourselves, our own prejudices, experiences, assumptions, ideas, hopes, and challenges to the table. I would highly recommend the TED Talk Dr. Williams gave in 2019. The resources she mentioned from the Child Mind Institute, the doll video, as she called it, along with her TED Talk are all linked in the show notes. Thank you for showing up today, everyone. As always, we're in this together. We'll talk again soon.